Welcome to this week's Money in Investing show. This week we are looking at the credit crunch and the impact that that seems to be having on the banking sector around the world. We'll explore some of the nuances of the Australian market and perhaps more importantly get into the root cause of why investment banks falling over is bad for everybody. You'll take plenty of notes on this, but as always, make sure you take plenty of action. See you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money in Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Lorenzo. Thanks for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter. And now as two once former, like to call ourselves elite sportsmen, we were used to the crunch of the physical contact rugby, in your case, AFL and mine. This time, though, we're going to be talking about the credit crunch on a financial perspective. How's that for a segue? It's a dreadful segue, but rather than re-edit it, we'll stick it in there just so we can see how bad it is. Yeah, no, I think um, there's a crunch on your material writing at the moment, yeah, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, look, the financial crunch, what we've seen, obviously, is something that's fairly new uh, for, for most investors that's really unseen since the GFC, uh, and that's the falling over of a decent-sized bank, uh, in, initially in the US, of course, being Silicon Valley Bank. Um, sends a shockwave through markets. There are ramifications from that. We'll talk to some of those points and, and maybe compare with where the Australian banks sit on a risk perspective compared to that, which I think is quite important to maybe assuage listener concerns and, and give people an idea of how and why markets are regulated in the way that they are. All right, well, let's unpack SVB first and foremost, Silicon Valley Bank, because it's actually quite complex. Now, people have no doubt seen the headlines, but the actual mechanics as to why it happened is really the cautionary tale there, mm. right? So, yeah, uh, the, the, the take deposits on one side and then invest them into different other uh, ventures, whether that's venture capital, uh, into new startups and things like that, but also into treasuries. In the Which US is normal, right? Yeah. Uh, and what's effectively happened is there's a mismatch whereby We've seen interest rates move up in the US fairly dramatically, about 5% through this cycle. Uh, and for interest rates to move higher, um, bond yields also move higher. But in order to facilitate that, bond prices need to fall. So the capital value of what Silicon Valley had purchased at this particular point of time uh, was worth less than what they paid for it. So can I, can I just pause there just for our listeners? So Silicon Valley, they've had deposit holders deposit money. Mm -hmm. They've then taken that money and they've purchased treasury bonds, right? Amongst other things, absolutely. Yeah. And those bonds have dropped in value because yields have risen. If you held the position to maturity, it would square itself off. But when you start to get withdrawals being made from your bank and people need cash, in order for you to realize that cash, you've got to sell your asset for less than what you paid for it, which leaves you with a deficiency. They, they raised, I think, 500 million to try and wallpaper over the cracks, wasn't enough. And obviously the uh, the end was there and in it imploded, uh, leaving investors in a pretty shaky position. Uh, very alarming if that's your money that's uh, held on deposit, that's for sure. Double whammy too, because as you say, bond yields go up, bond prices go down. So they had a loss on that side mm -hmm. when they've got all their deposit holders wanting to take out money. A lot of tech companies, for example, or growth, growth businesses that they had funds with as such needing the cash because their cost of capital has gone up mm. on high rates and they're also having reduced funding from other sources needing to take that money out cream them on both sides, right? Absolutely, and uh, and as a consequence, it is no more. And yeah, there's a knock-on effect for a couple of other banks. And I think, you know, the biggest one that we've seen, you know, to date has been Credit Suisse. Um, big name. It is a big name. I mean, give people an idea, Credit Suisse about the same size as Commonwealth Bank. So it's not massive, but it's big enough to, to, to cause more than a ripple. And in all fairness, look, I mean, Credit Suisse's track record has been nothing short of appalling over the last sort of decade uh, and beyond. In fact, you know, they had uh, around 10 billion dollars invested with Lex Greensill, Greensill Capital, which was, um, you know, the um, the supply chain finance company from uh, from from originally actually 
especially uh, Bundaberg, that went under, cost them 10 billion. They had another 3 billion invested in a different type of fund that fell over, cost them 3 billion. They've got $8 billion worth of German established 1940s uh, bank accounts, basically from you know, the Nazi party, that they've held onto the cash for, even though it's very obvious that that's where the money is from. Um, they've had various settlements. The French government was one that they've had fairly recently for, I think, 800 million euros. Like, it's These on the big nose. sums. Yeah, they're not small numbers. And so its track record of being fairly aggressive and gung-ho um, has come home to roost and it is no more. Deal of the century for UBS, of course. I mean, you buy a business that was worth 15 billion one week and 3 billion the next and you get it for three bill and the Swiss government backstopping it against any risk you might incur. It's a, a beautiful deal for UBS and UBS being the consummate deal makers they are, uh, probably rubbing their hands with glee on the back of it. Um, but you know, what it then points to is where else is there going to be another spot fire and you know, Deutsche Bank at the weekend reared its head. That you know is definitely in a different league as far as size is concerned and were something like Deutsche Bank to fall over that 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 is a Lehman brother Bear Stearns that's huge, it's right? massive and and it's GFC type 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 implosion stuff which is you know quite concerning to see out there and again Deutsche Bank has had a you know a fairly cavalier um, attitude towards its investment banking practices over the years so you know how can this risk risk really happen and 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 aren't these banks which are supposed to be safe? And the answer was, yes, they used to be, but that all changed some time back. Uh, and it's worth unpacking a little bit of history to understand, firstly, why these situations continue to occur. Uh, and then we can reflect on where we sit within the Aussie, uh, uh, invest, uh, the Aussie banking sector, which I think is, to an extent, the envy of the world. So in the US, for example, there used to be banks, i.e. mum and dad save money, get a mortgage, buy a house type retail banks, banks, right? retail banking. And then on the other side of the line uh, were investment banks. And these two types of organisation were separated by something that's called, or was called, the Glass-Steagall Act. And it was designed to church and state, retail banking over here, investment banking on this side, and never the two should meet. In terms of what they could and couldn't do, right? Exactly right. So um, that that act was actually repealed by Bill Clinton, I think in 99, if my memory serves, and, and is a major step back, I think, on reflection, the evidence would suggest that, certainly in terms of the security of a, of a banking sector. Uh, so all of a sudden, you've now got companies or banks that are retail banks that take money from mum and dad, lend on mortgages, and everybody go, okay, well, we can be an investment bank now and over on the other side of the ledger get up to stuff that's you know, really high risk speculative activity, which investment banks are notorious for. That's how they make their money, by, by trading risk. Uh, and that was all moving along okay until the GFC and I think the ramifications then became apparent where the whole banking system uh, almost imploded upon itself um, where money was taken from you know, the piggy banks on this side of the equation and used to fund you know, collateralised debt obligations and various other derivative strategies on the other. Uh, and you know, we saw Lehman Brothers fall on it, Bear Stearns amongst others and it was a bit of a wake up call. Now. If we look in Australia, the situation is very different because our banks are segregated. Um, you know, if you're the big four or five, um, you operate in the retail banking space. And, and that's all you can do, and that's retail banking. On the other side of the line, in the investment banking space, you've got Macquarie. And if you look back through history, you know, in the early uh, 2000s, you'd have had Elko or Babcock and Brown. Uh, they don't exist in the investment banking space now because they're involved with high-risk activities and they both went bust. So keeping that church and state has actually enabled us to have a very, very robust banking system here in Australia whereby um, 
if you're a depositor and you've got money with the Commonwealth or the NAB or whomever it might be, you're in a traditional bank. You're not going to find that it's been lent out for Bitcoin um, exchange investment or something like that on the other side of the equation. So to an extent that provides a bit of a safety net, I think, for investors in Australia when you look at the, the, the big four in particular as investment quality assets. So one difference though, AB, to point out between the US and the Aussie banks is that in the US there's, I forget the name exactly, there's an emergency fund. Yeah, the FDIC. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, should a institution like SVB go bust, then those deposits are backstopped. We don't have much the same here in Australia, only up to a certain amount. I think it's 250 grand yeah. per, per account. I think it's 100 in Australia, I think it's 250 in the US. Right. Um, and, and, and so that insurance scheme is designed to, to backstop if things go wrong. Um, but, you know, if you've got more cash in your account than that, then then you're kind of whistling in the breeze. And I know there'll be people out there going, well, it serves you right for having too much money, but that's that's not really the answer. The reality is if you're in a regulated sector, uh, then, um, then, then you should be afforded the same protection as anybody else irrespective. Uh, but yeah, that's something that's in play. Now, in this instance, the US Federal Reserve have come out and, and said, look, we'll backstop this uh, to make sure that even if your deposits aren't covered by the FDIC scheme, uh, your money is gonna be okay. Don't worry, we've got you. And I guess to an extent that's dampen the flames of concern uh, over in the US. But the flip side to all of this is it does create what's called a credit crunch. And a credit crunch is, if you can imagine like a dial that you can turn up or down, and a bank's willingness to lend money in the good times is very high because the economy is booming, they know they're going to get their money back and some. But when things are a little bit more murky and the outlook is somewhat more clouded, they turn it down and they're less willing to want to put money into the system and instead choose to keep that money back in reserve to ensure that the bank itself is going to be okay financially. Um, look after number one, I guess. And so in times of a credit crunch as we're starting to see now, when a bank falls over, it causes everybody to pause and pull back and hoard cash, which then strips that cash out of the economy. It's like someone's just put a vacuum cleaner on the cash floating around. And by its very nature, when you extract cash from an economy, whether that's through higher interest rates, whether it's through higher taxes, um, all of a sudden it does have the effect of slowing the economy down. Uh, and in the case of the US, you know, they run the very real risk that such a credit crunch really starts to move the economy from a slowdown and what's been called a soft landing, where, where you know the US Federal Reserve have raised interest rates to attack inflation and get it under control, which looks like it's starting to work. But they're very cautious. They don't want to be too aggressive in that policy of raising interest rates in case they kill the economy and put it into a recession. So the soft landing was on track where things were just going to touch down quite nicely, slightly slower economy lower inflation, job done. But with this type of credit crunch and the cash that would be being extracted from the economy right now, they run the risk of a harder landing and effectively a recession being again back on the agenda. And I suspect, you know, I guess you know, in a few weeks time we'll see the answer to this, but we'll see the Fed probably pass in terms of uh, raising interest rates at the next meeting. Will they digest the impact of, of, of what's going on in the banking sector? So can I ask you a, a tough question mm -hmm. here, AB? There may not be a, an answer to this, but as an Australian with an account in the bank or accounts with uh, the banks here, should is there any reason to worry? Look, I don't think there's any sign of concern here in Australia right now. I think, you know, and we'll see this as we see the banks move into their earnings uh, season um, next month. Um, and that is that there's going to be an increase in provisioning for bad loans because, you know, we're seeing some weakness in the property market. 
but that's normal banking stuff when you're in a retail bank. There's an expansive economy uh, and you lend it out and then there's a tighter economy where you have to put a bit of fat on the goose and, and keep your powder dry. And I think we'll see how banks move into that phase as they provision for maybe a little bit more bad debt and, and slow down their lending practices against the backdrop of a slower economy. But as for an implosion or a run on a bank or, 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 or similar, I don't think we're likely to see that here in Australia now. Okay, so second question to that, the fun one, are there any investment opportunities amidst all of this? Oh, look, there are always opportunities in there. <laughs> um, I think, you know, in no particular order, um, with what we're looking at here and the very strong probability that the US Fed will be pausing their interest rate cycling uh, on the basis that inflation is slowing, but also there's money being sucked out of the economy. I think being long bonds uh, would make sense. So things like TLT, which is an exchange traded fund in that space, um, is likely to be a beneficiary of that kind of backdrop. Um, I think you know we may see some structural weakness in equity markets as companies I'm not going to say struggle to find finance, it'll be there, but they'll pay more for it, um, which affects their operating capital, which affects their profitability. And I think you're going to see an impact on earnings from this too, to the downside. And we haven't got long to wait till the next earnings cycle in the US. And I know expectations are pretty low. Uh, we discussed that this morning as a team. Um, you know, I think earnings expectations are fairly low, but I wouldn't be surprised if they came in line with or even below expectations through this next earnings cycle. So, you know, having short trades in, in in a correcting market, you know, where you're profiting from a fall in the market makes an awful lot of sense. Maybe some straddles if you wanted to play in the derivative space for a, a volatility play around earnings, again, you know, would make some sense. Uh, and if I look at, say, you know, the Aussie banking sector, at the time we're recording this, obviously there's a shelf life on this recording, but um, which we try not to do with these podcasts, but, you know, we saw Commonwealth Bank report a little while ago, great numbers, but weak guidance. Dropped like a stone on the report. And then we saw, you know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank come through and we saw banks drop off even more. So I think, you know, in this very immediate time as, as we were recording towards the back end of March, you know, the other three Aussie banks look pretty good value for a, a run up ahead of their, their reporting. I wouldn't be holding them after the reporting, but I think there's the possibility of a, a nice tailwind to take you into that too. So, you know, there's three or four types of trading opportunity for investors there. The reality is not all banks are the same. And, and the, 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 the removal of that Glass-Steagall Act has made it very, very complex for people to understand the risk profile. If you think about Bank of America, the retail bank, well, it's really Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Um, so it's got an investment you, you bank. You wouldn't even know that if you were just yeah. you know, looking at this from the outside in, right? I, I, exactly right. And so understanding the composition of, of what the bank does, particularly what they do with your money, is extremely important. So that's one thing we are blessed with in Australia is that, that, that church and state situation where our investment banks are very much separated, uh, which gives us a level of peace of mind. That said, when the cold wind blows from the US market, it always makes it a, a, a little bit frosty here too, and we've certainly seen that on the back of it. So, you know, it, it's, it's a shock to the system, and it's something we haven't seen since the GFC. Let's hope it's now contained, and we can all move on with business as usual, but if it does spill over and that contagion moves into a bigger global player, and as I say, I keep referring to Deutsche Bank because that's the, the shining beacon of risk, I think, in European banks, certainly at the moment, uh, then, then all bets are off. It'll be a catastrophic sell-down in markets, but whether that happens or not, of course, is, is another matter, and it's down to the regulators and, uh, and, uh, and central bank in Europe, the ECB, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Plenty of risks, as you say, be but plenty of opportunities out there as well. You've just got to know which side of the ledger to play, right? Exactly right. You know, and just working out, you know, where the risk is versus where the higher probability, lower risk. In this kind of economy, I think just keeping the scoreboard ticking over and picking up a single here or there is a lot better than trying to hit the ball out of the park. Hit the ball out of the park, very good chance you're going to get caught 
instead of getting caught and walking back into the sheds uh, using a cricket term, instead you bust, you lost all your money and that really would hurt. <laughs> Great advice AB, thanks very much for your insight today. Absolute pleasure, anytime. There you have it guys, make sure you give us a review and a rating and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.